That is part of the miracle and magic of the gospel. When God saves us, he changes us and restores us such that we are able to live again at peace in harmony with one another. There is no such thing as a saved person who hates his brother. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Seeing the face of God changes the way we look at one another, and that's why there is no such thing as a saved person who hates his brother or sister. Amen. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 33. This is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. It is a beautiful thing when brothers dwell together in unity. There is peace in that place. There is life in that place. And there is a blessing in that place. But that place and that prospect seems very unlikely to Jacob in Genesis 32. You remember that he was he was planning and praying. He was worrying and waiting. He had heard that Esau was waiting for him on the other side of the Jabbok, and he knew what he had done to Esau. He remembered how he had left things. He had cheated his brother two times, and he had left him a broken and bitter man. Do you remember back in chapter 27, Esau says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Jacob took everything from Esau. And Esau begged his father, saying, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Esau was a broken man, and he was a bitter man. In fact, he was consoling himself with a thought of murdering his brother. He said in Genesis 27, 41, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau has been planning his murder when Jacob ran away 20 years ago, and he hasn't heard a word from him since. They didn't have email back then, and Jacob had been far away in a distant land for 20 years, and for all he knew, his brother had been sitting and stewing in that murderous rage the entire time. But if you remember from our last chapter, Jacob has met with God. Jacob has wrestled with God, and Jacob has been reminded that he carries the blessing of God. And Jacob is a changed man now because of the touch of God. He walks with a limp. He has been roughed up and refined over the last 20 years and over the last 24 hours. And so we have every reason to hope that this meeting will go better than it should, humanly speaking. 
Without any further ado, let's read this amazing story. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So Jacob is still a planner, right? He's thinking through the optics. He has arranged everything in the most pleasant, appealing, and submissive way. He's doing everything right here, even though he knows that the outcome ultimately is in the hand of the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray and do nothing. It tells us to pray and then do the best we can and leave the outcome to the Lord. That's what we see here. This scene reminds me of that scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian has to pass between the lions. Do you remember that? If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to go out and buy a copy of that book immediately. It is the best illustration of the Christian life you will find outside of these stories in the Bible. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian has to pass between these two lions. There's one on either side of this road. He has been warned of the danger of the lions by another frightened and faithless traveler. But he was told by evangelist not to leave this road. That's exactly where Jacob is. God told him to go back to the land of his father. But to get there, he had to pass through Esau. And he has no idea how he'll be able to do that. It it was faith alone that kept him moving, just like in Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember when Christian got to the pillars? Do you remember what he saw? He was trembling. He was so afraid. He was making his way inch by inch. And then as he passed between the lions, he actually saw that they were chained to the pillars on which they stood. They could not reach him. God had established limits on those lions, and Christian was able to pass safely through. So it is here. God has obviously gone ahead of Jacob and prepared the way. We see that in the next verse. Verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my presence from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. This is one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. I love what Jacob says here. He says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. 
Having seen God, Jacob now looks upon his brother in a whole new light. (laughs) That is part of the miracle and magic of the gospel. When God saves us, he changes us and restores us such that we are able to live again at peace in harmony with one another. There is no such thing as a saved person who hates his brother. The Bible says that. 1 John 4.20, the apostle says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, if you really meet God in the flesh, it will change you forever. It will change the way you look at other people. People who know who God is and who they are and what God has done for them in Christ cannot hold a grudge against other people. They cannot maintain bitterness. They cannot fail to forgive. They just don't see people the same way anymore. Those faces that once looked like enemies now look like the sons and daughters of God. They look like brothers and sisters, friends and soulmates. When you wrestle with God in the flesh, it changes forever the way you look at other people. God has done a work in Jacob's life, and it seems that God has done a work in Esau's life as well. And as a result, they are reconciled to one another. Verse 12 goes on to say, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. And I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, commentators differ here as to whether Jacob is being deceitful or considerate. Some see him deceiving Esau, likely in an attempt to avoid offending him by speaking about the promises of God and the need for him to go on to Bethel. Others see him simply setting a considerate pace so as not to burden Esau on the one hand or exhaust his family and the herds on the other hand. What is clear is that he delays in getting to Bethel. He seeks to establish a home base in Succoth, and then he moves from there to Shechem, which was a trading center about a day's journey short of Bethel. So Jacob is obeying here, but he is also planning for the future prosperity of his family. And as we will see in the next chapter, that delay comes at a very high cost. Our chapter concludes with these words. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paden Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. The name El Elohi Israel means God is the God of Israel. 
and it recalls Jacob's vow in chapter 28 and his new name given to him in chapter 32. Jacob is a new man. He is a man of faith now, but there is still remaining sin in his life, and that causes pain and hardship for his family and for his neighbors. We'll hear more about that in the next chapter. Thanks be to God. Well, chapter 33 was a relatively short chapter, so we're going to transition right into chapter 34 today. Pastor Paul, we'll hand it right back over to you. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 34. The Bible tells the truth about who God is, who we are, and how God has saved us through the person and work of Christ. Now, hear that middle part again. The Bible tells the truth about who we are. There is no effort made in the Bible to sugarcoat the human experience. The Bible does not blow sunshine at us, and it does not cover up the mistakes and missteps of its principal characters. The Bible shows us the good, the bad, and the ugly, and this chapter is ugly. I said in our last episode that Genesis chapter 33 is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, and it is. And here it is, side by side with one of the ugliest chapters in the Bible. That's how you know this is a divine book. No human being would put it together this way. This story does not reflect well on Jacob or his sons, the people we call the 12 patriarchs of Israel. If Israel made his own religious book, its own religious book, this story would not be in it. But it is, because God made this book. God made this book to teach us about him, about us, and about how he saves us through the person and work of Christ. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, I'm just going to interrupt here to say that the name is pronounced Dina in Hebrew, but I'm going to switch over and carry on just saying Dinah, because that's how we pronounce that name in our culture. Uh, Dinah went out to see the women of the land. Now, we've already mentioned that Jacob has been taking his sweet time in getting to Bethel. He set up a sheep ranch in Succoth, and then he set up a business area in Shechem, which was a crossroads in a market town. Jacob is seeing to his own business before attending to the call of the Lord. He's not disobeying. He's just moving very, very, very slowly. And it costs him. Like his second cousin, Lot, Jacob is exposing his family to spiritual, social, and here we see even sexual risk because of his desire to increase his own wealth and holdings. Derek Kidner remarks here, by halting his own pilgrimage, Jacob was endangering others more vulnerable than himself. Now, Matthew Henry puts more of the blame on Dinah herself. He says, note, the pride and vanity of young people betray them into many snares. Henry remarks that she went out to see and also to be seen. She was interested in petty things and as a result found her way into trouble. While there may be some truth to Henry's perspective, I'm inclined to side with Kidner here and put the blame on Jacob. 
It is a father's responsibility to put his children's spiritual well-being ahead of his own financial well-being. Lot made that mistake, and Jacob should have learned from it. Now, I don't doubt that Dinah was silly and attracted to foolish things. She was only 15 years old in this story, and teenagers are by definition silly and foolish and attracted to nonsensical things. It is the responsibility of parents to account for that and to protect them from that. Regardless of whose fault it was for letting her go, she went, and terrible things happened as a result. Verse 2 says, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, as I said, this is one of the ugliest stories in the Bible. The Bible records the truth about who we are as people. It tells us what we're capable of. In Genesis 4, we we learn that we are capable of murder, and here we learn that we are capable of rape. There's an awful lot of evil bound up in the heart of human beings, and we see that in this story. Notice that the young man Shechem imagined himself to be in love with Dinah. He raped her, but then he wanted to marry her. That is very different from what we see in 2 Samuel 13. I don't know if you remember that story. In that story, Amnon thought himself in love with his half-sister Tamar. So he pretended to be sick, and he got her to bring bring him some food while he was lying sick in bed. Then he sent all the servants out of the room so that they could be alone. And verse 10 of that story says, Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. So in that story, Amnon raped Tamar and afterwards hated her. Here in our story, Shechem raped Dinah and afterwards wanted to marry her. Just note that there is no fixed or logical pattern in terms of the lusts and violence of men. There are many roads into rape and many reactions to rape, but note this very well. It is always an ugly, grievous, and unconscionable sin. Whether you think yourself in love, whether you fancy that you might get married, whatever you are thinking, it is sin. It's an act of violence and violation, and it demands redress. Verse 5 says, 
Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Here we see the young man and his father trying to arrange a marriage with the young woman that has been defiled. Notice that there is no repentance, no confession of sin, no remorse only a pathetic explanation. The soul of my son longs for your daughter. Notice also that there is an attempt to buy Jacob off, dwell with us, trade with us, get rich with us. Now, Jacob, for some reason, is not in the forefront of these negotiations. Perhaps he was consoling Dinah or Leah or both. We don't know. Verse 13 says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Now, notice that Jacob has passed his sins on to his sons. Jacob has been slow to move to Bethel. He has been slow to mortify the sin in his own life. And those two failures now conspire to make a horrible situation even worse. Verse 14 says, They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this occasion will we agree with you, on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you. We will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor, and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters." Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Now, listen, however much you may sympathize with Dinah's brothers, this was not right. Rape is a crime. The boy should have been punished. There should have been some sort of trial. And when he was found guilty, there should have been an appropriate sentence, possibly even a death sentence. But to butcher an entire village and to take numerous wives and children captive, this was over the top. This was to meet sin with more sin. Now, however typical this sort of retribution was in that day and age, it was wrong. And the Bible says that it was wrong. Most of us don't realize it, but the principle of lex talionis, right, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was actually intended to outlaw this very thing. The principle of lex talionis said that the punishment had to fit the crime. If a man raped a woman, then he had a trial and you killed that man. He didn't butcher the whole village. One crime, one punishment. And the punishment had to be proportionate to the crime. If the crime involved a tooth, then the punishment should be at the level of the tooth. If the crime involved an eye, then the punishment should be at the level of the eye. Butchering a village to avenge a rape is disproportionate. All that will do is invite further disproportionate reprisals. Jacob sees that. Verse 30 says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob has made a mess, and his sons have made it worse. Jacob may be blessed, but he is not yet a blessing to the nations. The good news is that God isn't finished with him yet. In the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 35, God says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Once again, God intervenes to get Jacob back on track. He does not abandon us to our sin and stupid. He lets us see the cost, but then he comes again and he speaks a word of correction and rebuke. Thanks be to God. Oh, wow. That is an ugly story. I, I do love what you said there, though. Quote, Jacob may be blessed, but he is not yet a blessing to the nations. Close quote. Would it be fair to transpose that into New Testament terms and say something like Jacob was saved, but not yet sanctified? Yeah, I think that's fair. If we identify Genesis 32 as Jacob's conversion moment when he was wrestling face to face with God and had his name changed... Then this story, just a short while later, is a reminder that saved people can still do really stupid and sinful things. And that should caution us, but it should also encourage us. Because as we saw at the very end of chapter 34, the Lord intervenes to get this little family back on track. Thanks be to God. Yeah, absolutely. That is awesome. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. 
You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 